Hey, I'm Brett Gornick. I'm Jason Lobig. Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. Best day ever. We are coaches, trainers, retreat leaders, and wellness advisors, but didn't start our careers doing this. Jason worked in public accounting, and I worked in corporate retail until starting our dream business in which we help people from all different industries pursue their best day ever every single day. The goal of this podcast is to interview both each other and other professionals making an impact on the world on how wellness is the fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. This podcast is about teaching people to actively pursue their purpose and how to use self-care to do it. We're here to show you how the best day of our mindset is available to anyone at any time, no matter your circumstance. It's your choice and we're here to encourage you. Have the best day ever. Brett and Jason here, Live Better Podcast with Pete the Planner. This is going to be a super special episode because we are going to get into financial wellness. So we talk a lot about keeping your body and your mind right. And we all know that there's that little itch we all want to scratch of figuring out your 401k, when to invest, how to save money to start a business. And Pete does this across so many cool platforms. He has a really awesome platform that's business to consumer. He has a really awesome platform that's business to business. And um, Pete, uh, I was introduced to Pete through my wife's mom's business uses his software, uses his platform. And um, she speaks super highly of what they're able to accomplish. So essentially what they're able to do is all of her employees are able to ask questions, learn. There's so many cool modules, whether it's saving for your kid's college fund, uh, buying your first home. And besides just the modules, they have support. So they're able to ask questions to people and get live feedback. So it's a really awesome platform. Pete is also the author of a slew of books around this subject, and he hosts his own podcast and radio show. And so, Pete, uh, with that long intro, we are excited to have you on the podcast. Hey, I am glad to be here with you guys. Uh, I'm going to have you come up every time I speak and do a keynote. I'm going to have you do that intro, if that's all right. So <laughs> um, you're going to have to use your own frequent flyer miles because I'm not putting it in my writer, but I'd really appreciate that. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome. And I love getting people on the show that we've had interaction with, whether that's through somebody else um, or that we've met in person or talked to. And um, after listening to so many of your webinars and, and everything, I feel like I, I know you. And I just love um, your philosophy on financials and how it's a piece of the puzzle and how it's a very important thing, but not something to spend every waking second over and so to dive right in, can you just kind of give us what are like your core values in regards to money and finances? Well, first off, I, I think most of us just want peace in our life. You know, we want it in our relationships. We want it in our faith, if that's important to us. We want it at work. Yeah, we want it with our health. Uh, we don't want disruptions in our health. But secretly, down deep, all of us actually just want financial security too. Unfortunately, we are our worst enemy when it comes to our finances under normal circumstances. Our current worst enemy is a global pandemic. But, but pri prior to that, our, our worst enemy is really our behavior. So my core philosophy as it relates to money is to help people get what they want by getting their behavior out of the way and, and employing the strengths of their personality to achieve that. 
Yeah, I love that. Um, I think that with that, there's there's a lot of different pieces to that puzzle. And I think people get caught up in what is currently going on. And one of the things that I know I do is like um, after or prior to listening to you, it was just not taking the adequate amount of time to analyze or to assess. And when that happened to me, it was like all of a sudden things would come up that I'm buying a condo, I'm getting married. And it wasn't like I had any prior planning or thought. So what are some of the ways in which, and, and I love that the books that you have are great because they break down, you know, you can read one of these books pretty much every 10 years and just kind of like a level set for that piece. So what are some of the, the strategies or, or things you implement so that people can get started um, in understanding how to create this piece? Well, I think we are uh, raised in such nurturing environments now where we're constantly told that we're, you know, we're good and we're special and uh, we can do everything we want if we put our mind to it, and uh, which is all good. I'm not complaining about uh, loving parents. However, I will say people have this unfounded confidence instilled in them when it relates to money. Because when you really begin to relate to money and understand money, you're in your teen years. Your parents are probably in the prime of their career. They're able to provide for you at a level they once generally weren't. And so your expectations on what your lifestyle can be and should be is set off of that. And so when you go to make financial decisions, you make this assumption that you know what you're doing, but you just don't know what you're doing. You have no clue what you're doing. I I like to think of it like prior to when nutritional information was on the back of food packages or on menus. Do you guys remember those days? Yes. It was great. You just walked (laughs) around like willfully, uh, blissfully ignorant, right? I loved it. I remember when those things first came out and I went to a fast food restaurant, a a regional fast food restaurant that uh, is in my area. I went to their website. They were one of the first ones to put the nutritional information online. And I typed in my order of what I always get. And guys, I have not had that order since then. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, It was brutal. And I think with our finances, what we do is that we just assume we know, we assume Because we're smart and, you know, oh, I was in honors class. Well, I've always sort of succeeded there. I trust myself. No, you actually don't know what you're doing. It's the same thing as nutrition. It's like saying, well, I know I know food just because I've eaten food. It, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I think that, you know, what the hardest part is, is that people just don't come to that point of confrontation fast enough. Like it takes some pandemic to be like, uh-oh, I can't pay my rent for the next like two months rather than doing this forecast out where it's like, well, I should have this much saved up in case something like this were to happen. Obviously you can't identify it directly, but, um, and I think, you know, we run into the same things in health and our business is a hundred percent based off of preventative health. What are the things that we can do now to ensure a lifetime of good health and to do those things before we're in some type of challenging situation or before we've been fronted, confronted with adversity. And to your point, it's a hundred percent something that I never put a ton of thought to until like this year. <laughs> I finally have just like started to 
pay more attention to my finances, like get things under control. So personally, like I have a, a, a lot of good follow-up questions for you, but to your point, like it, it is something that most people just tell themselves whatever story that they were told growing up. Like, oh, yeah. you'll just figure it out. I think it's a really good point about adversity. You guys know this, and I guarantee you say this phrase when you speak and you teach people. It's people change for two reasons. When there's they get a vision of their life and it could be better without pain or pain arrives and you are forced to change. That's what wellness is, is it's before the pain. And financially, I think, unfortunately, billions of people around the world and certainly tens of millions of Americans are currently realizing that they are about to be forced to change based on the economy. And it hurts my heart. It really does. Uh, because I know the people who are prepared for this moment, they're equally as scared, but they got a little bit more cushion than the people that were blissfully ignorant. And when you talk about uh, creating peace, yeah, when you talk about creating the peace, and like you said, being prepared for things like this, like like Jason said, what you just mentioned is like exactly what we do. It's like we see so many one-on-one clients that come to us because they've gotten injured due to like a repetitive motion injury, right? And the other side of it too, and and everything you're saying, my mind just goes into like the health space. It's like, well, when I, Jason tore his hamstring last year, I, I broke my collarbone a few years ago. And we were ready to come back from that because we already had a healthy original state and we had the knowledge of how to come back from an injury. So it was like, okay, I'm hurt. This is broken. It's going to heal and I'm going to aid in its healing. And most people, when the injury happens, it's this long misunderstanding of, how am I going to heal? Not only are they not mentally prepared, they're not physically prepared, but also their pre-existing baseline was not at a good position. So what they're going to come back to is going to be at a deficit compared to where you could be if you were healthy prior. So I'm just like talking this over in my head. Um, one of the things that that I always you know think about when I think about financial health and wellness is we play this comparison game where we see the Bill Gates and the Tony Robbins and the Trumps that just have like, you know, we think financial freedom is making X number of dollars a year. So when you talk to people about that, whether it's the word financial freedom or wellness or peace, how do you talk to an individual or a company or within your work so that people can get to grasp what that means for them individually, right? So a farmer doesn't necessarily need or want a private jet, but somebody that came from a life of the, you know, of a higher economic class thinks that those are a minimum. So how do you kind of work with somebody to really define like what you actually need to be happy? Because that to me and within America and our culture is so discombobulated because we're just flooded with information that you need this type of shoe or you need to sit in first class to be happy. How do you confront that question? Well, what we're about to go through is the conversion from the abundance philosophy of the financial world to a scarcity philosophy, just so you know. I mean, that's what is on the horizon. You know, the world is your oyster. You can do anything you... That is going to be true for fewer people now. 
and and I don't like it. I'm not you know flaunting it. It's just true. Um, I believe the goal isn't to have a lot of money, and, and this is coming from a person who has done this for 20 years. When I was an investment advisor, I managed 100 million dollars of clients' money. You know, but the goal isn't to not have a lot of money. The goal is to not need a lot of money. And that sounds like a, a Hallmark card, like I'm being cute, but it it's the truth. People think they're going to be able to retire because they'll wake up one day and they will have stacked it, as the kids would say, that they've got a bunch of money, but that's not how it happens. The way you do this is that you don't allow yourself to gather obligations as you age and yeah. then force the obligations out of your life in the last two years before retirement. That's what people think they're going to do. But <laughs> but the goal is to live a level lifestyle, not necessarily employing all minimalism, but principles of minimalism. It's like if you have 39 shirts in your closet, you actually don't care about the 40th shirt, but you're going to buy it anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you have seven shirts, you love your shirts, man. You love them. Yeah, that's. I, a, I, I love that. My my, you know, and my thought to this too is that I don't think that there is enough of that talk growing up, um, and not from your parents because I think, um, you know, you don't get to choose where you were born, um, and you don't get to choose where you're born into. But but to the like abundance argument, at least briefly, you do have the ability to change your circumstance, and I think education. Um, and getting access to education can be a good way out of that. The problem is then in that education system, that abundance philosophy is just continually pushed. And you don't ever, I don't ever remember in high school or in college ever having a very frank conversation. And I went, I got, I had a, I actually started um, at PwC. I was a CPA first before I switched into doing this. So um, my dad was an accountant, um, worked for Deloitte for a really long time. So that's the track that I sort of got pushed into. And I think the interesting thing was that at no point in high school or in college going through an accountancy program, did anybody ever um, discuss that sentiment, that it is not necessarily perfection is not achieved when there's more to add. It's when there's nothing left to take away. And then with that, the the just the things that you feel like you really need on top of need maybe there are definitely a few wants but things that you appreciate because you don't have 50 of them you have four of them so you actually have the time to appreciate those four things i don't think a thought was really given to that kind of lifestyle whereas like i could be happy before i got to 1 million in the bank 2 million in the bank 20 million in the bank i think it's just it to your point there's so much happiness to be had without ever needing to achieve these like objectively large markers of wealth. And that it like that sort of place where you're, I, I, I don't like objectively am maybe not extremely wealthy, but subjectively I have all the health and wealth I ever need. Yeah. What's interesting. First of all, Jason, the fact that you have an accounting background, yet you're still easy to talk to is in itself a miracle. So <laughs> hey, kudos actually, to you. I, I had a business law professor and he said, all my CPAs in the house raise your hand. He said, they're going to surgically remove your soul and then you're going to spend <laughs> your entire life trying to put it back in there. That's true. It's true. 
you know, I think it, it's really interesting what, what you said here. And I think part of the reason of how we got here revolves around the history of retirement. So prior to the 1930s, people didn't retire. Like if a guy didn't show up for work, it's not that he was retired. He was dead. It's like, where's Rick? Oh, he must be dead because he's not here. That's it. You you worked until you died more or less until the 1930s. Then in the mid-1930s, there was this concept of social security where people would you know, have a period of time in which they weren't dead and they weren't working. And it was a couple years long and it was called retirement. And then what's happened since then is that period of time has become the reward for a person's work. So much so that in the 2000s, there's this movement called the FIRE movement, which involves young people, you know, 20s and 30-somethings, trying to say, all right, well, I want to be a FIRE person, which is an acronym for Financial Independence Retire Early. And so people were trying to work for 12 years and then be retired for 35 years or 40 years. And so a big part of the rat race of why we try to stack money is it has become our aversion to work and and people falling out of love with what they do for a living and and trying to move on from it so they can do what they really love. I mean that is the ethos of like our business is to get people in the right state of mind so that they just do what they want to do and like I mean, you know, one thing that that you might not know is that Jason started in accounting. I started in uh, data analytics and we both hated those jobs. Like we, that was just not what we wanted to do. So we came together and we started this business and, you know, for years and years we did both and we started doing other things. And since we've quit that job, like the thought of retiring has completely like left my mind. It's like the, all I want to do now is like iterate and like think of new ways to do what I do. And it's like, are you going to be per- like people ask me, are you going to like be personal training clients when you're 60? I'm like, yeah, there's going to be 60 year olds, 70 year olds that want to move and I would love to help them. And by that point, I'm going to have created so many other cool things to do with wellness that the business is just going to continue to evolve. And so to your point, I think it like one of the main things that that fuels us is that when we see somebody that we interact with for t- a certain period of time get out of a situation that they don't want to be in and move to one that they love. And I think that like, when you talk about that good place that you were mentioning, like that is really what it is. Yeah, we need to pause for a second and acknowledge how much people though, honestly feel betrayed right now by that concept that both you and I preach because they're doing what they're lo- they love and by circumstances completely outside of their control, their financial life is currently ruined. So um, there are the economic realities of doing mm-hmm. what you love. And and where I think this goes as a culture is that people will still do what they love. They will still be a chef or an artist or, or whatever they want to do, but they will be forced to have higher financial standards for their households that add a layer of protection to everyday life. Totally. So what are some, let's, let's get into some of the, the nitty gritties here. And you've got books for your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. So let's do like a mini rapid fire round. Like what are the three things right now in the current economy with the virus, with the pandemic that our 20 year olds should be focusing on? 
So really, age is important here, but there's three realities that exist within each of these age groups. And and so there'll be some parallels, but it's important to address all three. The first group of people are people who have been greatly financially impacted by the economic shutdown related to COVID-19. Okay, so that's the first group. The second group are people who haven't been affected yet, but could be soon. All right, so they're, they're sort of in purgatory. Then there's the third group who has stability. They have employment and income stability, and they have an emergency fund. So as it relates to 20-somethings, most 20-somethings are in group two, right? Right now, they're either in group one or group two. Group one being greatly impacted, group two being could be soon. The key is to probably not try to get out of debt right now. You just want to carry your debts, which is to make minimum payments uh, if you have federally backed student loans, you don't have to make payments until October, which provides a a sense of relief. Um, beyond that, though, it truly is about cutting expenses. You're going to see. I mean, this I'm I'm about to deliver some rough news, but you asked. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of boomeranging, which in our business means twenty uh, somethings being forced to move back in with their parents. I, I think that will be a trend for the next nine months or so. Um, because millennials are unproportionately, disproportionately affected by what's going on right now, because they're theoretically the lowest people on the totem pole of a corporate ladder. And so they're the ones getting kicked down the ladder and out. So I know that's not fun answer, but that's what the crystal ball says. What about 30s? 30s is a little different, a little bit different not terribly different. The realities of someone in their thirties is they've already seen, you know, arguably some sustainable career success. And so the danger there is that they grew their lifestyle as their income increased. And by the way, everyone does that. I mean, (laughs) it's called lifestyle creep, right? Your income creeps up. And then before you know it, you're like, wait, how did we get all these obligations? And, and then you have this awakening. So I think people in their 30s are going to really evaluate, reevaluate uh, their desire to live a certain place, to drive a certain thing. Um, but so 30s are definitely less affected than 20 somethings in, in this situation. 40s is where it gets a little sticky, right? Because depending on what end of the 40s decade you're in, if you're on the late end, if you're 48, 49, you got kids ready for college, which is going to completely, you know, change your perspective on your spending that you would make for college. If you're in your early 40s, uh, it's a little different, right? You're, you know, you've got a little more security. Um, so it's it, it'll be interesting if we did this interview six months from now. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what's changed. But as of now, as of the recording of this, it's it's rough going. Yeah, I think I think one thing I pulled from it and I listened to your most recent webinar was and and I've always been an advocate of this, it's reducing expenses. And I think that you know, like you said, <clears throat> it is now taking this whatever pandemic for a lot of people to look at. How many things are you subscribed to online? Um, what what clothing services are dropping off clothes at your door once a month? What trips do you have planned that are just not necessary? Um, you know, all of those different expenses. And like you mentioned, this different amount of shirts you have in your closet. What would be for, and, and let's go, you know, we're talking three years ago. So this has nothing to do with the pandemic. 
what are some strategies that you have to look at your current kind of holistic model of, of wellness and start to really take a deep dive into where you're spending money in a way in which you really don't need to? Because like you said, as you start to make more money, you just start to buy more things and do more fun stuff. And there's nothing necessarily like wrong with that. Now, a lot of people outspend what they earn, which is a mistake. But what are some ways you can take an objective view of your spending so that you can remove some of the emotion from it and just say like, frankly, I don't need the Rolex. I, I'm good with a Timex. And, and just like really say that in an objective way to yourself without a pandemic that forces you to do it. Well, you always got to reinforce the concept to yourself in the mirror that you're not a watch guy. <laughs> at, one, at one point in my career, I was like, yeah, I'm a watch guy. And I had a bunch of watches. And then it stopped making sense because I only had you know one wrist I would wear it on. Um, <laughs> so that's one. Now, I think actually, and we can go through it, we, we have something called the ideal household budget, which are just percentages of what a person should put towards the different areas of their life. Again, though, it's important to acknowledge that this is the standard we're talking about. If you're struggling right now, don't feel judged or, or you know accused that you did anything wrong. However, during the rebuild, you might want to consider working some of these things in. You know, before you have your take-home pay, you know, before your paycheck hits your checking account, we like to see between 12 to 15% of your total gross pay go towards retirement. Uh, and that can include your employer's contribution if they happen to match your funds. So if you had an 8%, 8% of your income going to your 401k and your employer said, okay, well, we'll throw in 4%. Well, there's 12%. So that's the first place to start before you even get paid. Uh, beyond that, housing, right? <laughs> Housing's the big one. And I was just sitting here thinking as we're talking, man, those tiny house people look like geniuses right now, don't they? <laughs> exactly. They are the people camping are genius. They you know, I used to... Off. I used to sort of giggle a little bit at preppers. It's like, oh, you're you're burying beet powder. Cool. Um, but they're geniuses right now, you know? So, so yeah, housing, 25% to 40% of a person's take-home pay should go towards housing. Um, I like 25%, but I also, guys, I live in the Midwest. I mean, they'll just knock down some corn, build a house, and it's only going to cost you 25% uh, of, of your income. On the coasts, and, and maybe more exotic areas, you're going to be 40, 45% because of the cost of housing. Beyond that, transportation, 15%. You, you cannot take your transportation payment over 15%. So that's going to be car payment, insurance, or fuel. And if you happen to be a public transit person or you ride a longboard and smell like patchouli, whatever, um, then by all means, uh, just keep it under 15%. And this is where it gets interesting because now we're getting into some some things that are harder. Th those are difficult, but this is where it gets difficult. 12% of your income going towards groceries and dining out. If you're a young social person or you eat mainly organic and healthy food, guys, it's really tough to stay 12% of your take-home pay towards groceries and dining out. As you would imagine, because you're so health-centric, that's tough to do, right? Totally. With that question, if because I'm health focused and I and I don't and I use a bike, when you start to work with those percentages, can you say, well, and obviously it's individualized, 
But if my if my automotive is zero percent, or I literally ride a bike that's in the city that costs me fifty bucks a year to rent, so can you start to like work in some you know bleed some of those percentages over, and and where do you kind of draw the line in regards to that on an individual basis? I I would argue um, that if from our point of view, your physical and mental health. And a lot of that is from food, is of vast importance so that you can then make really good decisions in regards to what it is you want to do with your life. Now, if, if the majority of your money is in your home and you then can't eat healthy, then what what we see is that you start to make poor decisions and then you kind of get into the rat race and then you're just not expressing what you can fully express to the world. So where do you and like how do you decide as an individual to shift some of those percentages? You've just captured the essence of budgeting in that question. Like at one point in time, we had 1% of our income going to transportation. And so the other 14% went to childcare costs. You can always take this ideal budget and say, you know what? I, I live in a tiny house and 4% of our income goes to it. So what am I going to do with this other 21% of our income? You're, you're saying exactly what people should do. What you value is where your money should prove it. Unfortunately, most people, if you confront them with their spending percentages, it tells a different story about what they value than what they just told their buddies. And so this is why you should budget. So you can call yourself a liar, very frankly, you can say, oh, I'm about fitness and I'm about this. And then you look and it's like, no, dude, you're about a car. That's what you're about. Um, and, and brilliant. I mean, it's a brilliant point of yours because that's how you do it. That That's the whole point of this. And, so then, and then to piggyback oh, off that, to piggyback off that, what, where I struggle when what, what you said, I think there's there's a there's a you know a finite line, right? You say you're a wellness person, but you only spend this amount of money on your wellness, and you do the rest on like drinking booze because you think that having a six pack and drinking beer is cool. But the side of which where it's tough for me is where people value, and again, this is subjective. But people place value on things like you said, I'm a watch guy. Well, unless you're buying a watch that's going to appreciate that you can then sell in 50 years, like how do you confront what you value so that you aren't spending money on dumb shit? Well, I mean, that's it's why you consistently have to check your spending. So what happens is your priorities shift over time. I'm 42. My hairline's uh, that of a 56-year-old, but I'm 42. Um, my values have changed, uh, in five years and then 10 years from then it, it just constantly changed. But if you look at your spending, you'll see your old values in your spending. Yet, since we don't like to confront ourselves with financial realities, because we don't like to talk about money, we just gather obligations. We don't even get rid of the old ones. That's the dumb part. You know, when people were keeping their landline phones in their house for years for no reason, why? You don't want to talk on the phone. You can't text on that stupid thing with a cord, <laughs> right? And, 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 and everything is just a different version of that. That's why, honestly, the, the minimalism culture, which I'm not a big part of, but the idea of 
I'm going to put my money about things I value towards things I value without compromising my stability, which is the other side of this. You can spend 38% of your income on kale. I don't care, but you better have an emergency fund because banks don't accept kale as payment. And that's what Pete, and that's what I want to get into big time, because as Brett mentioned, like this whole discussion hinges on a completely value-based judgment. So like if I value travel over the food I eat, then I'm just going to eat beans and soup out of a can so that I can travel to the places I want to go, which makes all of these allocations, you know, subjective to based on who's filling them out. So I have a, a couple of questions and this applies to both Brett and I, um, and I think a lot of people that are going to be listening to this. Um, so within some of that, like budgeting psychology, right, we all sort of have stories we tell each other based on our, our tell ourselves based on our own values. Um, I definitely fit into, I want less stuff, but the stuff that I have, I want to enjoy and I want those to be nice things. Um, I have a couple big financial decisions to make over the next couple years, including what to do with a house and then kids. Um, all the while, I have an inconsistent income stream from multiple sources. So Brett and I have personal training clients. We do work with a bunch of big brands. We teach um, group fitness classes. We have income coming in at our live better level where we do corporate speaking and engagements. Sort of taking all of that into consideration as you build this budget, what do you think a good financial snapshot should look like in terms of building that stability around having kids, buying a home, and we can just, you know, as an example, put a dollar value to that home. Um, and what do you think some of those like baseline stability markers should look like? Understanding that we have inconsistent income. So like if you want a, a snapshot, like when we buy a home, say that home is a million dollars for ease of math. If you want to buy a million dollar home, what should that financial snapshot look like? Um, at the current time. And you can just use both Brett and I's age worth 30. So I would just say, first of all, pay frequency is arbitrary. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs or people with multiple streams of income get caught up with the ups and downs of it. The reality is you have an income for the year. Uh, and as your income and in the years go on, it does certainly grow. And I'm, I'm going to say, all you have to do is it's complicated, but this is what we do. You just pay yourself a salary. The first three to six months of doing that require you to live on on minimum uh, expenses. But once you set it up, it takes all the stress out of pay frequency challenges that once existed. People, more people would own their businesses, own businesses, if pay frequency was normalized. And so, if that's one of the biggest barriers to entry and the most difficult parts of owning a business then just attack it that way, create that stability. So that, that's one issue. In terms of a million-dollar house, man, I mean, so there, there's a couple ways to look at this. The, number one, you probably theoretically need to have at least $100,000 at least to put down as a down payment on that mortgage. So there's the idea of the next couple of years, if you haven't already, you'd have to accumulate that. Beyond that, you would want to have an emergency fund beyond that because if you if you took all $100,000 you had 
and you put it into the house, then you know, you're in trouble because being a homeowner is expensive and you always have random emergencies, which you need thousands of bucks. And then I think the mortgage payment would be, I don't know, depending on how you structure it, five, $6,000 a month. Um, but again, there, there's so many variables there until you can make $20,000 a month. You probably shouldn't look at buying a million dollar house because you still only want to put 25 to 40% of your income on a monthly basis towards your mortgage payment. And that doesn't, I think it's funny when you do the math and you look at those numbers, it presents this like a pretty massive, obviously a massive financial obligation. So how are you guys starting to talk to people between buying and renting? And I know that that's another like, well, it depends on where you buy and where you rent. Um, but for people in their in their 20s, right, I think a lot of us start renting. But as we have started renting coming out of school, we're 30. At this point, we live in Chicago. At this point, the rental market is an attractive offer due to um, how much taxes are due to like, you know, just, just the whole financial picture. So like, if you're going to choose to rent versus buy, how do you guys advise people on filling in those other investment buckets? So like thinking about rent then as an expense rather than as a investment, essentially. Paying down yeah. Mortgage. I, I'm a big proponent of renting when you want to enjoy other parts of life. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with renting. And if you're a person, uh, this drives me crazy when people are like, Oh, we love to travel, but then like 48% of their income goes to rent. And it's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. You love to have a cool place, bro. You, you, <laughs> you don't like to travel. And, and, and so that's a big part of this. If, if you want to eventually own a home, then what you would do is you would make sure that the place that you're renting is modest enough that you're able to gather a down payment over the next few years. If that's not important to you, then you view this stage of your life as the years we lived in a cool place and had a lot of friends. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the old sensibility of you're wasting your money if you're renting, it's just, it's old and it's tired. I'll tell you right now, um, renting's not so bad. It, it, it's not so bad at all because if you have, like you said it, if there's an emergency, if, you're, if you know, your furnace goes out or your water heater goes out, it's not your problem. <laughs> Someone's going to show up and you're not getting the invoice. And if you don't have a lot of financial stability, that's a great um, privilege. Hundred yeah, percent, and that—that's the big thing for us too—is that you know the bias of this conversation for us, self-admittedly, is that I grew up in a financially stable home, and I think that I got a really good picture of what that should look like, um, and was advised early on at least to make certain sound decisions. And I think you know that is that is certainly a privilege of mine. Um, but then my education sort of like reinforced that, like moving through is like, Hey, you, you are looking at how these numbers are coming in and out. Like that is the basis of accountancy is where are the numbers coming into the business? How are the numbers flowing out of the business? And understanding that gives you a, a picture of financial health. And I don't think that there are, I mean, you're definitely going to agree with this, like growing up in, in schools, there is not enough financial education for people to make those adjustments in real time based on 
the values that they put on the things that they want. So like travel versus rent. There's not enough uh, there's not enough personal confrontation with being like, oh shit, I'm actually spending 50% of my money on rent because I never went through the tools. I never went through the, the planning process, the templating process to actually make a budget with somebody who's willing to have a frank conversation with me about it. Yeah. If we're going to talk about this, just so you know, it's going to get a little dark here for a second <laughs> because there's a reason that that's not more prominent within higher ed. And, and by the way, I'm partner in a higher ed financial wellness organization. I partner with Indiana University. Uh, so, I mean, I teach this stuff to hundreds of thousands of college students a year. There, there's two major issues. Number one, and some universities are good at this and others are embarrassingly bad at this. To talk about students about financial literacy is to let them know what their student loan payment will be before they graduate. Most organizations, and by organizations, I mean universities, don't want the kids to know because they wouldn't keep making that decision. You know, if you say, well, hey, if you come back next year, your student loan payment goes from $638 a month when you graduate to $1,120. Like, no one wants to have that conversation. Number two, um, and this is super dark. Um, I think a lot of financial literacy for young people revolves around arming them to defend themselves against poor corporate ethics. Because what's happened with consumer credit and how we're preyed upon by lending institutions is for me to teach you what to do is to show you how to avoid being a victim of predatory lending. And so that's dark. That, that's ugly. Because what I'm saying is, hey, here's what you learned in college, how not to be taken advantage of by all the businesses in this world. So, you know what I mean? That's 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 dark. That's it's and but it's true, but it's dark. And and especially on the back end of that is like those are all the businesses with the best paying jobs to go work for. Absolutely. And and this is even the worst part. Even if you look in community, uh the, the community, uh, just you know, uh municipalities, city of Chicago, city of Indianapolis, wherever, a lot of the community financial literacy programs are funded by financial institutions. So they never go there. You know, they show people how to build their credit, which arguably is interesting, but it's not necessarily the healthy thing to do. I've met, I met a guy in Chicago. It's funny you bring up the Windy City. This was probably 12 years ago I was speaking. This guy came up to me afterwards. He's like, Pete, uh, I got a, I got $90,000 in credit card debt, but I have an 800 point credit score, how, which by the way, for those that don't know, that's really, really good. He was like, so how is that possible? And I'm like, because credit scores show how good you are at borrowing, not how financially stable you are, Yeah, <laughs> which, which is like a big, you know, there's metrics within health and wellness, right? That people think are important, but you guys know that they aren't important at all. I mean, what's the, what's your version of that? That yeah, like I mean, speed, uh, speeds, like if, if someone was going to say like, oh, I run a two thirty marathon versus a three thirty marathon rather than just focusing on how often do you exercise? Yeah. I mean, there's that versus the calorie in calorie out. There's so many, I mean, every bad diet ever created is based all on founded that. on the same thing. Just marketed yeah. differently. But there's just so much distraction, and that's that's my big thing. And and you know what? That's it's it's more of a reflection on the way that a 
and, and this is sort of where, where Brett and I come back around and are empathetic, but not sympathetic because, you know, we fall prey to this all the time. If you lived in a bubble, you wouldn't need to whip around in a Tesla and live in a massive house and wear the nicest watch and wear the nicest suit because you would have no mirror looking back at you being like, what do I look like compared to everybody else? And, you know, if I lived in New York City, I would work 23 hours a day because that's what's valued, you know, and you get caught up in all of that being around that, you know, in in our world, we get caught up in what we look like next to the person standing next to us in the gym, rather than focusing on like what's really, really important around us. And I am coming back to the fact of um, personally trying to decide for myself, what are those things that I place a value on and then going after building the financial stability and trying not to wait too kind of too long to figure out what those are. And really trying to put in some like, you know, backdoor stops where it's like, hey, don't, you know, let's, let's be more conservative at the outset rather than the other way around where like people are entering a job market right away and being like, I have an income finally and starting to spend a bunch of cash. Um, I'm going back the other way and like much more aggressively saving so that I can then have the flexibility to make those decisions later based on like, oh, I, I want a new suit or I, I, we need a new car and driving something that might be a little bit nicer. Um, but I think that is, is such a difficult sort of like reflection to have is like, we are so ego driven based on what we see. I mean, I'm looking out my window right now and I can see 20 different cars and 10 different apartment buildings that all look different, some nicer than others. And you, you know, you, you make that judgment against yourself. And then that starts to, <laughs> that starts to uh, stir up a lot of decisions that might not move you towards financial stability in fact in the in the opposite direction yeah i i think when you get into that what you have to realize is the vast majority of americans from age 20 to 40 are are voting with their money for things that interest them not things they value um not that they that they don't deeply value and then once you hit 40 or so for most people 50 you start trying to align your money with your your deep seated values, and then that's well, that's called a midlife crisis. Actually, um, <laughs> that that's the concept. If you start to look at your life and you go, "Well, wait a second, this isn't going the way I thought it would go," and then you, you that restructuring process is sort of the manifestation of that. So it's not unusual. I didn't start saving aggressively until I was twenty eight, and I. I was day trading stocks in college. That's how I, you know, that's how I got through college. So, but I wasn't saving money until I was 28. I'm still pissed at the 22 to 28 year old me uh, about that. But again, I think your values just continue to evolve over time. And there's, and I think what's important to also say here is if your values are different than mine, that doesn't make your values wrong or mine better. They're just different. And so, but they will evolve. <laughs> So one one question I have for that is Jason and I have been doing a lot of work recently with Chicago Public Schools, which is a it's a, it's a very interesting place to be in, um, and we're essentially helping these kids who don't come from the greatest economic situation with their mental and physical health. Um, giving you a couple just like understandings of what we're working with here. Uh, PE is the most failed class in Chicago public schools. 
the funding per kid per year is like $3 for PE. Um, so you want new jump ropes? Well, you can get 20 for the whole year. So Jason and I go in and we do yoga, fitness, and meditation for these kids. And the reason we're starting with them is because through our years of working with adults, like you mentioned, is that people get to 30 and then they start to get a little bit of a tire around their belly and then they want to work out and then they realize that they need to do it, but they have no idea where to start and there's zero consistency because they're just trying to figure it out and all of the values or all of the um, structure they had, they're fighting against because they're playing this internal battle and trying to just layer on external things. So we are like, okay, well, if we can help the youth at a young age get a mindset that, hey, if you sit down and meditate for 10 minutes a day and you structure that in at age six, it's not going to feel weird at age 30 and you're going to do it for this 30-day challenge and then fall off. So when you talk about, and uh, you have kids, right, Pete? I do. I have an 11-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old son. Okay. So as their father, but also as somebody that understands financial stability, wellness, wherever you want to go with it. And I'm sure you talk to them about this and their peers. What are some of the things that you talk to about at a young age that isn't like overwhelming or scary or making them not take risks or pursue being an artist versus getting a stable job so that you can get a paycheck that set them up with the financial literacy so that when they're 50, they're not like, oh shit, I got to figure this out. But they're like, oh yeah, when I was 12, I started a bank account and you know, my dad would every, every 50 bucks I'd put in, he'd give me an extra five. So now I've always saved because I realize there's value in it. Like what are some of the tools you're teaching them at that age so that they're not pissed at their 22 to 28 year old self? Well, I, I will share best practices with you of what I do recommend, and then I will share a couple tips of what I do that I don't necessarily recommend. But I like to be transparent, so that's the way we'll do it. Uh, number one, I think the second your kid understands the concept of you know, tactile touch, they need a piggy bank. What you just described with Chicago Public Schools, you're doing the equivalent of teaching a kid savings via a piggy bank. It just becomes this... The, you know, this mechanism of accumulation, which is just a healthy way to think. It just becomes this habit. And then you just end up saving bigger amounts and then you get into percentages. It's like, oh, you got your first job. Well, set 20% aside for this. And, and, and so that's important. We do a lot of lemonade stands at our house. Um, sometimes we do it so the kids can, you know, use some of the money to buy themselves something. Other times, the whole thing's for a community organization and we're just, you know, give the money away. So I, I think that's important. I think another thing that I do recommend before I get to the tips that I don't recommend um, is saying the phrase, we can't afford it. I think so many parents don't want to disappoint their kids or want to look like failures or second class citizens in the eyes of their offspring that they refuse to respectfully say, you know what? We we can't afford that because we want to send you to college. So that's what we're saving for. My 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 daughter a couple of years ago was really into. We should get a mansion. And I'm like, well, let me <laughs> let me help you understand. Do you guys remember when you were kids thinking the same thing? I remember thinking 100%. that. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And and so it's like, well, here's the thing. We could probably get a pretty big house, and our house is 
pretty big again midwest 4000 square foot house it's not that hard um we could get a really big house but then some things that are really important to us we couldn't do like paying for your college right so those are the things i recommend now let's move on to the one tip that's really rough but it works if you ask my kids what they're going to do when they grow up they will preface their answer with i don't know but I can't live at home with mom and dad. <laughs> well, I'm not kidding. From the time my kids were like five, I, I, the, every time someone would ask them that, because, you know, you always ask a kid, what do you want to be? I want to be a veterinarian, whatever, who cares? Just know that option of moving back in is off the table. And, and you knowing that is going to allow you to solve that problem over the next 13 years of your adolescence. <laughs> because it's just not enough. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's funny is like taking off that advice is I, I am a, you know, I'm sure that when you guys are going through this, you see a bunch of different personality profiles and risk appetites. I, it, it's, and, and you said your financial picture is kind of a reflection of your, like your values at that point. It's been funny because as I have grown up, I've always been on the risk taking side of things. And only now, as I'm starting to consider like, oh, I have to build this long term. Am I, am I thinking more stability than more like push and risk taking? And as a kid, you don't have any concept of stability. Like you don't need it. Like the stability is, is um, created for you. Like hopefully that's what your home is doing for you. Hopefully that's what school is doing for you. If home is not doing that for you. And I think it's interesting when you become an adult, like then you have to create that stability for yourself. And I just never even gave a thought to it till like last year. <laughs> so it's just, it's interesting how those conversations like up and, and how your personality and how you grow up certainly influences the way in which you view what money should allow you to do in life. If you have elderly relatives who passed on stories of your family from the depression, they'll, they'll tell you pretty interesting stories about stability and scarcity. I'm curious, honestly, and I, I don't know if I have a theory, but I'm curious, will, you know, what do they call young kids? Z? I don't know. My, Gen I don't Z, know. Yeah. yeah. Will they tell stories 30 years from now of, well, when I was a kid, we had water soup. Like, I, I mean, will they do that too? And I ask half seriously, right? It's like, wonder if sensibility shifts because of this. I mean, these are the questions that my team and I, you know, spend most of the day talking about as we help people, but I think it's possible. Well, I think sensibility shifted certainly in 08. Like, uh, we, we, we have a lot of discussions about this because, you know, we're on the older side of millennial and, millennials get grouped into all types of buckets, right? You, just, you, you hear like, oh, look at the good things millennials are doing, but probably more often than not, that stigma is relatively negative. It's like, well, um, you know, you're not willing to work at a job until you die doing it. <laughs> like you're bouncing around, you're always looking for the next best thing. But at least in Brett and I's case, like I pride myself on being a hustler and a hard worker and will be until the day that I die. And I think that the interesting shift came for me when I started to understand that corporations no longer were taking responsibility for the financial 
health and the well-being of their employees. Like no longer would your pension last until the day you die because that loyalty was baked in. Like my mom, when she was younger, worked for P&G and she would tell me stories all the time. We still live in Cincinnati. Tell me stories all the time of like the P&G office would be closed because of a snowstorm and people would walk like 12 miles in the snow to go to work and just show up out of the like a deep rooted loyalty. Well, that's gone. And that wasn't any of our somebody our age's fault, right? Like we didn't have any millennials writing predatory loans for banks for people who were taking out those mortgages. And so when you come out of an environment like that, it just seeds distrust, whether you're making a conscious relationship with that or not, and at some level. And I think what's going to be interesting to your point is seeing how kids are coming out of this affected. Like my younger brother is a senior at Indiana, actually, and he doesn't get to walk at graduation. He's missing his last two months of school. And I think it's just a really weird time to enter work because people are losing their jobs. People are having their income reduced. And it's just it's a weird time to immediately associate my life now with like a, a large majority of it. Now I, I have a working relationship, whereas you didn't have that before. So I don't know what's going to come out. I don't know what's going to come out of that. But I, it's certainly going to affect them, though, I think. Certainly. Yeah, I think so. Um it is strange because even think about people who are, I think they would be 32. No, uh, well, people who graduated in 2008, 2009, whoever those people are. I can't do math today. It's Friday. Yeah, they're um, 34. Good enough. Yeah. So those, yeah. those people, I mean, man, that that's tough because they dealt with that situation. They started their careers trying to get a job in the worst time possible, get a job. And then now that they are entering, you know, the good part of their career in their early thirties, they hit another giant speed bump. So it's tough for them, just like it's going to be tough for, you know, kids graduating in May this year. Wow. This has been, there's been so many good things. I, I one thing you said what is this going to look like in six months? I We definitely need to do a part two because I have so, I'm writing down more questions than I'm getting answered, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's been great because I think you've, you've dove into some of the, some of some really cool things that I've taken away from all the stuff I've listened to you from, from you um, around the relationship that it is with, with our finances and how that really is like the baseline of it. And then some really cool tactical tools. So before we get into our, our last question that we'd like to wrap up with, what are some of the ways that people can use some of the things you've created um, to, to take some, um, some like, you know, take a look at what they're doing? Like you have a couple different products um, online that businesses can use and individuals. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of those? Because I think a lot of people are going to want to look into that stuff. Sure. So for our, our companies that we work with, uh, large employers, and we serve about 1.2 million employees a year, that's through Your Money Line. So you go to yourmoneyline.com and, and it's basically a, a group of professional financial problem solvers that work through employees' financial lives. Then we have a version of that for consumers called Hey Money. And if you go to callheymoney.com, that's callheymoney.com, you can actually go to the blog there and we have a 30, we were in the midst of it, uh, a 30 day recession-proof your finances free course on there. So 
I highly recommend people go there if they're trying to press reset, if they're they're tired of guessing, if they want to cut their spending, go there. It's a, a 30 day video series. Each video is 15 to 20 minutes that you can watch uh, for 30 days. And so that's callheymoney.com on the blog. Awesome. And then what are what are the books that you have right now that are out? <laughs> there's a few there's 10 um ten. <laughs> yeah. so there's a lot i don't I, you know go, you can go to petetheplanner.com and, and go cool. through the library there it really however old you are i would go to the decades books which is what you mentioned yep. so it's your money life your 20s or your money life your 30s probably for most of your audience great so we love to ask this question our motto our life philosophy is to have the best day ever every single day and this is a great time to talk about that because a lot of people, we get the question all the time, well, how do you have the best day ever when shit hits the fan? Well, that is exactly what our mindset is about. It's about foolproofing your day so that whatever comes at you, you are able to react and, and make it a positive. So you learn from it, you grow from it. Um, and a lot of that comes from, like we've talked about, like setting up these systems so that you can create that for yourself. And so let's take away the current economic, current crazy conditions of life. You can travel, you can do whatever you want. Say this is, you know, eight months ago. What does Pete the Planner's best day ever look like? Well, it it involves physical activity. Uh, this is sort of crazy. I was pulling it up on my phone as you're asking this question. I have an 886-day fitness streak going. Um Every day I work out for 30 minutes and I mix it up so I don't hurt myself, right? And even the rest is just a nice walk with my family or something like that. But that's important. Um, I love to, uh, I'll tell you, working at home over the last three or four weeks has been really interesting because at any point in time my day gets hairy, I can go out and give my kids a hug. So that's <laughs> that's sort of a newfound thing that's interesting. Um, you know, I like helping people with 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 their financial challenges. That's probably, and this is a discombobulated answer. And you'd think, wow, for a guy so well-spoken, what a crappy answer. But, you know, I haven't really thought about it a lot. I, I like to fish. Maybe I go fish for an hour and, and hook a fish in the face. And um, yeah, what a terrible answer. And then watch crappy shows with my wife at night, drinking a bottle of wine. I think that's the perfect day. Uh, that's a great answer. I love that. I think we find that it's fun when people are doing what it is that is there is that already. Um, and I'd like to ask one final question. I was looking through your bio and I've definitely chuckled a couple of times while on this, but it does say that you are a comedian. So I need, we're going to go two jokes. I've been asked this question in a job interview. So say you're in a job interview and the interview asks you, tell me a joke. What would your joke be? Oh boy. By the way, the, the bio should reflect. I was a comedian. I was a comedian past tense oh man what is my favorite joke all right this is a dumb joke but i like it uh there's two muffins and uh they're in the oven and one muffin turns to the other muffin and says man it's hot in here and then the other muffin says oh, a talking muffin uh, i don't know i i think that's funny. <laughs> i don't know I, I think that's funny and and so now people have just turned off the podcast <laughs> that's why we saved till the end all right yeah. one more joke give us a financial joke no because that's a lot that's real funny these oh actually there is one i have an, a comedian friend that says um my bank sent me a letter and said i had an outstanding balance and i said why thank you <laughs> <laughs> 
That's <laughs> sort of funny. That's good. Those are good. That's what I needed. I needed a couple of those chuckles. Um, awesome. Well, Pete, uh, this has been amazing. And I want to just set, end it off with just one one final piece of advice, if you could give it to our listeners. And this could be financial. This could be about 800 days in a row working out. This could be about time right now with kids. Just any advice or any kind of closing remarks that you'd like to to send off to our audience. Yeah, I would just say make sure your values match your actions and your actions match your values. I think a lot of people have good intention, but if they step back and took a look at what their actions were, they'd realize they're not living the life they want to live. That's really well said. Um, Where can people find out about you outside of the website? Um, Are there any other places that people can find out about you or reach out for their business or anything like that? Uh, yeah, just PeteThePlanner.com, and I write a, a weekly column in USA Today. So if you happen to actually still read newspapers, just pick up the USA Today money section, and you'll see my bald head in there. <laughs> awesome. Well, Pete, we this has been great. Uh, thank you so much for your time um, and what you're doing. And I think, you know, for people that are listening to this, like, this is a very timely interview. Um, and... It's something to, to really consider, but regardless of the time, I think the stuff that P puts out is, is of so much value. Um, and I think like we've talked about a lot today, it's just being honest with yourself. And I think it's um, taking time to reflect not just on your, your physical health, but the financial health that we've talked about today. So Jason and I say so much. Thanks, Pete. And uh, this has been awesome. My pleasure, guys. Keep up the good Thank work. Thank you, sir.